Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Happy New Year, and welcome to the January 2009 edition of the Yale Press Podcast, the monthly podcast from Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondak, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Eric Sundquist about how Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. developed the language of his I Have a Dream speech. It's certainly one hazard of the, of the fame and the wide recognition of the speech's most famous phrases that King, or even the whole of the civil rights movement, has been, by, by virtue of that, turned into a cheap soundbite and Godfrey Hodgson about the American concept of exceptionalism in public affairs. This belief, which has been very often a positive one, strengthening one uh, over the centuries, uh, I think has been uh, kind of corrupted and misused recently. Stay tuned. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington, August of 1963, he was using a series of rhetorical tropes that he'd been working on during most of his professional life. In the new book, King's Dream, Eric Sundquist looks at several parts of the speech and examines both Dr. King's personal relationship with them and the larger issues the tropes represented in American history. Eric Sundquist, thanks for taking time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today. My pleasure. As noted in your book, King's Dream, uh, the I Have a Dream portion of Dr. King's speech was not in his prepared remarks, but it wasn't completely improvised either. Do we know when he began to work out some of the rhetorical tropes that he used in this section? Well, that's a, a question that gets to a, a really important aspect of King's style and uh, also the lasting significance of the dream speech. Different versions of the most famous parts of the speech, uh, both his repetition of the phrase, I have a dream, as a way of formulating illustrations of black freedom and equality. And then his reiterated quotation from the song America, Let, Let Freedom Ring, had certainly appeared previously. Uh, he used the I Have a Dream sequence in different forms in a number of speeches during 1962 and 1963. And the citations from America, uh, that is from the song uh, often known better as My Country Tis of Thee, these dated back at least to 1956. King also spoke frequently about the American dream as a, as a matter of racial equality, uh, maybe most artfully in a 1960 sermon entitled The Negro and the American Dream. Uh, there he made the point, which was a point made earlier by Du Bois and by Langston Hughes, among others, that uh, in a real sense, America itself uh, was essentially a dream, but a dream not yet fulfilled. The original ending of the dream speech uh, itself, however, contained none of this. It was a lot more bland, a kind of programmatic call to continue organizing and to go forward with more nonviolent protest. But for whatever reason, King discarded that ending and created a new one. Uh, some people remembered that Mahalia Jackson called out, tell about the dream, Martin. Uh, but King himself later said it just suddenly occurred to him to use something that he liked, uh, something that he'd used before. In any event, all of a sudden King departed from his prepared text, and he created on the spot uh, the part of the speech by which it's best known today. And what's 
most remarkable about this version, in my view, is that you know, even though it was by then something of a set piece for King, uh, it's easily the most elegant and most elegantly constructed and the, and the most melodious version. And in, in that sense, the conclusion of the speech really was in some sense improvised. But there's a, a further reason that, it's, uh, that we can't say that the ending of the dream speech is fully extemporaneous. And that's because the cadenza, uh, Let Freedom Ring, was, was not King's own invention, even in 1956. He borrowed it directly from a, a speech at the 1952 Republican National Convention given by the black Chicago alderman Archibald Carey. Uh, this, is, this has been known for quite a while and studied in detail, first by, by, by Keith Miller some years ago. Uh, King's habit of borrowing from other texts was, of course, uh, a big part of his creative repertoire, uh, as it has been for many preachers, especially in the African-American tradition. And King was a master of that kind of incorporation and improvisation, uh, but when he used the words of others, he always made them his own by making them resonate in new ways, in, in more powerful ways. So when he said in the speech that he dreamed of the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slaveholders sitting at the table of brotherhood, or when he dreamed of the state of Mississippi becoming an oasis of freedom and justice, uh, and then especially when he called for freedom to ring not just from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania, but also from Stone Mountain of Georgia, he was really making a, a, a more complex and specific argument. Uh, for one thing, he harked back to earlier bells of freedom, uh, like the Liberty Bell itself, which had been frequently invoked, invoked symbolically by anti-slavery activists a century earlier um, as, a, as a bell that would ring in freedom for slaves in the South. And he looked back to uh, things like James Weldon Johnson's turn-of-the-century Negro National Anthem, with, uh, known as Lift Every Voice and Sing, uh, which asks that heaven and earth ring with the harmonies of liberty. And then just thinking of King's own moment, uh, his use of my country, tis of thee, uh, also in, in a way alluded to the, to the then popular song, If I Had a Hammer, uh, which had been covered by Peter, Paul, and Mary in 1963, and which uh, also speaks of the bell of freedom being heard all over this land. So King called to mind for his audience uh, in all of these ways uh, the, the, the ringing of the bell of freedom and when he portrayed the nation as a, a, set, of, a set of interconnected mountain ranges he was really making a, an argument of, of significant constitutional uh, significance um, reaching all the way back to the battle, of, battle against slavery in other words he was arguing for national African American rights by rejecting the segregationist doctrine of states' rights. And so his climactic lines about letting freedom ring uh, made mountains from east to west and north to south the, the, the heights, the prospects from which freedom could be seen, as, as they had been in many of his sermons and, and speeches that incorporated the exodus uh, uh, in earlier years. So it was magnificent oratory, but King's geographic depiction of the country 
really underlined his insistence that although his first intention was to transform the South, to, to end segregation in the South, he really spoke uh, as a citizen of the nation. But without his improvised lines, this extraordinarily dimension of the extraordinarily important dimension of the speech uh, would have been altogether missing, and, and we wouldn't think of it in these terms at all to get today. So talking about climactic finishes, is it fair to say that to the degree that this speech has become one of the most important speeches in American history, then in a way it marked a climax of King's career? And I say that because no one doubts his abilities as a political organizer in a way to a man who could move the civil rights agenda in the South when it came to political issues. But as you point out in your book, once he got to this speech, he really started to focus a little less on the political issues and a lot more on the economic issues, particularly in northern cities. Did he find that those same skills he was able to use in the South to help people achieve their political and civil rights translate well when he went to the North to talk to blacks and whites about the economic uh, economic injustices he saw? Well, the, the short answer is no, uh, he didn't. Uh, and in some sense, that's hardly a surprise because uh, addressing the nation's economic disparities was, in reality, a far greater challenge than enacting laws to, that would outlaw overt segregation. Racial discrimination and violence didn't disappear as a result of the civil rights movement, but um, as, as history would prove, the most deeply entrenched forms of legal segregation uh, did come to an end. Uh, yet, as Malcolm X and other more radical black leaders never tired of pointing out King's tactics of nonviolent confrontation might change voting laws, but they could really do little to solve the problem of, of black property. By the time he was assassinated, uh, when he was planning the new march in Washington called the Poor People's Campaign, King was beleaguered all around. He, he was attacked by black power advocates as being too timid and out of touch with the needs of the urban poor. And, in fact, he was diminished in his general influence and prestige among many white liberals and, and the general public because of his strong opposition to the Vietnam War. Uh, but even before that, however, uh, King's campaigns in the urban north, most notoriously the time he spent in the slums of Chicago in 1966, were far less successful than his campaigns in the south. Uh, partly this was a matter of rhetorical style, but... Uh, looked at from that perspective, King's style also tells us a good deal about the limits uh, of his effectiveness. Uh, with respect to the protest, protest actions he led in Montgomery in 1956 or Birmingham in 1963, for example, and clearly with respect to the March on Washington in particular, it's important to underscore that King had to guard his way of speaking, his manner of speaking, very carefully. Um, he got significant coverage by newspapers and, and television, uh, and precisely for that reason, he had to maintain a, a very delicate balance between insistence and reassurance. Uh, he couldn't afford to appear in any way threatening, uh, or he could do so only very subtly or symbolically, um, as when he predicted in the dream speech that the, the whirlwinds of revolt would continue to shake the nation until the bright day of justice emerges. So it, it's no mistake that observers came up with contradictory phrases such as radical moderate 
or conservative militant to describe him. Uh, as, as King himself put it, you just can't communicate with the ghetto dweller and at the same time not frighten many whites to death. He had to find the, the best balance he could between those who considered him a dangerous radical on the one hand, uh, and it wasn't just whites who did, some blacks did as well, and on the other hand, those who considered him too cautious or, in fact, naive in his commitment to nonviolent protest. The dream speech in, in this way is a masterpiece of control. It's forceful, it's even tinged with anger, but it's also visionary and, and very hopeful. It places the struggle for black civil rights squarely within the great tradition of American opportunity, uh, the American dream in its most basic form. Uh, he called on the Declaration of Independence, and he called on the Bible. And he was extremely careful on this occasion, as, as he was on many others, to elevate the cause of civil rights by uh, elevating the cause of America at the same time. Uh, in, instead of rejecting America's foundational values as proponents of black power were inclined to do, and, and as many of his black critics were inclined to do it at that time, King really purified those values by joining himself to the revolutionary tradition, that is, that is, the tradition of the founding fathers, through which he thought those rights were guaranteed. So you know, leadership based on that kind of rhetoric could speak very effectively to issues of discrimination and equality before the law, but uh, both the rhetoric and the leadership derived from it was far less able to address persistent problems of economic disparity. Well, finally, are you concerned that the speech has become such an important part of American culture that it's kind of becoming divorced from the context in which it was delivered? And because of that, people misunderstand exactly what Dr. King was trying to say. It's certainly one hazard of the, of the fame and the wide recognition of the speech's most famous phrases that King or even the whole of the civil rights movement has been, by, by virtue of that, turned into a cheap soundbite. And it's certainly true that the speech has been exploited and parodied and misappropriated for all manner of commercial and ten tendentious political purposes. It's been scorned and abused, as, as King might have said, or maybe buked and scorned, as Mahalia Jackson might have said. This, the speech has inspired slogans for the Olympics and campaigns to combat AIDS. It's been used in a variety of advertising campaigns. And one can find quotations from it, not just on coffee cups and baseball hats, but also on pet clothing and, and even on women's thong underwear. Public surveys show that American teenagers are more likely to identify correctly the source of I Have a Dream than they are the opening of the Declaration of Independence or the Gettysburg Address. That, surely that's regrettable in one sense, but I'm generally of the view that it's not so tragic, and that being more conscious of King's dream, not less conscious, and wanting, wanting the blessing of his words on occasions that are both majestic and occasions that are trivial, and not necessarily such a bad thing. Uh, the point of my book, however, is to overcome that fragmentary sense of the purpose, uh, the meaning of the speech, 
and to return it to its historical moment. And by this I mean not just the context of 1963, but the long context of debate about African-American rights and the very meaning of the nation itself that dates back to 1776 or even earlier. Uh, King really did believe in this aspect of the American dream. He really did believe, as he put it in one of the speech's great sentences, that when the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. Um, in that sense, it's no mistake that the election of Barack Obama as president has been seen as the fulfillment of, of King's dream. Uh, as public figures, of course, they're dramatically different. For one thing, there was far more of Jeremiah Wright in King, certainly in the later King, than President-elect Obama would ever wish for in himself. And despite his masterful speaking style, there's far more policy than there is of poetry in, in Obama's speeches. And the election means the end of the question of race in America. It's not likely that we've entered or will anytime soon enter some kind of post-racial era still, uh, in, a, in a very real and meaningful way, the election of Obama does make him the, the true heir of the promissory note of which King spoke 45 years ago. Uh, Eric Sundquist, author of King's Dream, thanks so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. It's been my pleasure. Eric Sundquist is UCLA Foundation Professor of Literature at the University of California, Los Angeles. King's Dream is now available at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Eric Sundquist, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. The Puritan leader John Winthrop once warned his parishioners that the Massachusetts Bay Colony would be seen as a city upon a hill. Over 300 years later, Ronald Reagan added the word shining to describe how he felt about America's special role in the world. But is America really that exceptional? In his new book, The Myth of American Exceptionalism, Godfrey Hodgson looks back at the history of America and discusses how exceptionalism can lead to bad decisions. Godfrey Hodgson, thanks so much for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. I mentioned John Winthrop and the Puritans in the introduction to this segment. Can we trace the beginnings of American exceptionalism to them? Well, I think what you, not really to, to Winthrop. I mean, the, Winthrop was, was picked up on by, by Ronald Reagan, it obviously meant a great deal to him because not only was that in one of his first major speeches, but it was actually in his last speech when he left the, the White House. And almost everything he said was wrong. He got the name of the boat wrong. And, and uh, he, he, wrote, he, he seemed to think that Winthrop um, gave this famous sermon when he was already in the United States or on the rock-bound shore of uh, Massachusetts. But, but actually, he was speaking in a church in Southampton, England, he was an Englishman. He had never left the England at the time he gave the sermon. So I, I just took that as an example of, of, of kind of mismaking, really. Uh, myths being things which are not wholly untrue, but which uh, give wrong impressions. What is true, however, is that I think you can trace some of the origins of American exceptionalism back to English and European Protestantism of the 16th and 17th centuries, because there is this idea of people who have been elect 
by God uh, to save the world. And that is an idea which kind of recurs in American nationalism in different forms in almost every generation. But I just, I've written this book because I'm unhappy about the way in which this belief, which has been very often a positive one and strengthening one uh, over the centuries, uh, I think has been uh, kind of corrupted and misused recently. And when I think back to the Puritans, and I wanted to ask, maybe not Winthrop in particular, because as I understood it, when Winthrop referred to, you know, will be seen as a city on a hill, it was more of an admonition about American behavior or, you know, the Massachusetts Bay Colony behavior than it was a, a, I want to say, a call to, you know, we're going to be a beacon to the world. Well, I, I think that's right. There's actually, what he's really saying is we want, we want to be a beacon to other English colonies uh, or British colonies. Well, the only other colony, British colonies really, except for, for, for Jamestown, Virginia at the time, were the mainly Scots colonies in Ireland, which have not on the whole been sort of legendary for their liberal beliefs over the centuries. So, I mean, that was just a slightly naughty little jab I, I gave. But, but I, I do think it's really important not... This is kind of beginning of, of the study of history, is that you don't uh, take things anachronistically. And, and, you know, when Winthrop gave that sermon, first of all, he had never left England. Secondly, he went out of his way to say that he was an Englishman. Uh, he belonged to a, a party which was just about to... Uh, fight, defeat, overthrow, and execute the king. Uh, he, so uh, they're, they're very strong and enduring ideas in American exceptionalism, American patriotism, really, which can be traced back to British and, to some extent, to other European origins. That's one of the things I was trying to say. Let's go to the book, the, uh, the book itself, The Myth of American Exceptionalism. And I, when I read it, and you kind of alluded to it in an earlier answer, I was wondering if you meant myth in a literal sense because it's not really true that there's an American exceptionalism or more in a figurative sense that this is a way that this society has chosen to explain something important but can't really put their finger away to explain it in a sort of linear way. Yeah, well, uh, I, I actually looked up the, the just recently, just today, I looked up uh, the dictionary definition of myth, and it's it's quite interesting. A double, uh, it, it's a double definition. I'm just turning over the, the pages. Here we are. Um, this is the Oxford English Dictionary. Myth, noun, one, a traditional story about the early history of a people, typically involving supernatural beings or events. Two, a widely held but false belief. Now, I, I don't myself think, I wasn't really using the word myth in the sense that everything involved is false. It's just that it's, it's I, my understanding is that a myth is something that's taken on a kind of magic and power of its own, irrespective of whether it's wholly true. And one of the things I say in the book is that it's bad for both people, individuals, and for nations to believe things about themselves which are not wholly true. Um, American exceptionalism, and uh, we'll talk about some of the moments in American history where this might have come out, but 
You know, I was wondering, is it really that different than you mentioned some other countries like England? When I think of if somebody asked me, can I describe English exceptionalism? It's the fact that, you know, I think one of the myths of England is that they're that they see the responsibility of taking civilization to the world as they did through the empire or Japanese exceptionalism, where it goes even farther back that they are a, a people apart. And, and that's the way the divine origin went. Yeah. Is, is I mean, How is American exceptionalism? Is it different than these exceptionalisms? I, I think it's different because in. You know, I mean, look, look, two things. One, most great nations, and indeed some nations which are only seen by themselves to be great, do have a sense of an exceptional destiny. Um, it's certainly true of China, of Japan, of Spain, France, Russia, Germany, um, England, uh, at different times. Um, and that that's that's one thing. It, what does seem to me different about about America, and, and I, I trace quite a, a bit of this back to Woodrow Wilson, actually, is the idea that it is the high destiny of the United States to bring its civilization, its democracy, its concept of freedom, and now increasingly a particular definition of capitalism to the rest of the world. And in some cases that contains the idea of using force, if necessary, to share these benefits. Um, now, that idea was not new to Woodrow Wilson because it's kind of contained in, in, in well, for example, in the period of uh, manifest destiny. Um, one of the, uh, you know, kind of almost amusing things is that at many, several times in American history, the United States has proposed to to make war on Canada to bring the benefits of liberty to the Canadians, which they historically have not been particularly keen to to adopt. You know, you uh, get me jumping ahead of my questions because I was going to mention the last book you wrote for Yale dealt with the Wilson administration. And if you looked at them on paper, <clears throat> you know, Wilson, very much kind of a progressive uh, Democrat from at least the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century. Um, and the day the current Bush administration, you wouldn't think politically they shared a lot of, of room. But I would get a sense there are parallels between how both administrations see America's role in the world. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that both the Clinton administration and the Bush administration actually consciously used the, the the Wilson legacy and specifically what they would call neo-Wilsonianism. Now, actually, in the early, early months of the first Clinton administration, the president himself, two successive secretaries of state, and, and the National Security Advisor all made speeches saying we are neo-Wilsonian. The difference between them and I think and the, and the um, group of people around George W. Bush was that was that in the Bush administration it, this was more aggressive. This was you better go along with our idea of democracy and by the way also of unregulated capitalism or else we might decide to bring you these benefits. Uh, and that that's the difference. I think the Clinton administration was not so aggressive, uh, but both of them would I think claimed the, the Wilson legacy. Now Wilson himself was a very complicated man. I mean he was. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, he was a Southern racist. He was also a man who genuinely believed in in a, an idea of freedom and and wrote uh, you know in a subtle and learned manner about democracy. And uh, but he also was was pretty high-handed. I mean, 
the example I always take, I mean, Wilson was forever saying that people should not, uh, that, you know, the powers should not uh, kind of move people around uh, and stick them in different countries according to their interests. But Wilson did exactly that himself. The one very obvious case being the unfortunate German speakers who were stuck in, in northern Italy and been bitterly resenting that ever since. Uh, Wilson was a very curious and contradictory man. I think apart from else, he'd been considerably sicker. He'd been medically more ill for longer than anybody realized. So as we go forward, I want people, could you give us a sense of your particular relationship to the United States? Because I know about it from the book, and we talked a little bit about it before the interview, and I want to make sure that people realize that that although this book is arguably critical of points of American history, you yourself have a very different, a stronger personal tie to the United States. Yeah. I, I, I first went to the United States when I was a graduate student. Uh, I uh, then... Um, Went back as a as a reporter. As I was a, a correspondent in Washington for many years, and then I worked. When I worked in TV, I made a number of documentaries about the United States. Uh, I've worked in, I believe, in 48 of the 50 states, uh, and I've spent my life uh, studying the United States, largely because I'm fascinated by it. It's a country I love. Going back again, you know, two weeks after Christmas, and uh, I'm um, I love the United States, but I have been disturbed by some of the trends that have been uh, that have made their appearance over the last let's say 20 25 years I want to go back to Wilson a minute because Wilson was in his way a very high-minded moralist as you talk about it, and really maybe not he had a great deal of moral certainty or as I like to tell people it an admirable degree of his um, admirable degree of moral righteousness uh, that I do not possess but if we think about the League of Nations his greatest his greatest arguable monument it didn't pass the America. And I was curious, this whole idea of exceptionalism, can it be drawn between how America engages with the world as opposed to a kind of another sense in American history, the sense that we are America, we're the Republican experiment, and we really shouldn't get involved with anybody else, that we should just be focusing on ourselves? Well, I mean, there's a very neat example of that, which is the conflict, in fact, bitter personal enmity between Woodrow Wilson and Henry Cobbett Lodge. Lodge also was an American exceptionalist. Uh, he he was an American aristocrat, if ever there was one. He was uh, passionately convinced that the United States must must plow its own furrow, must find its own way, and he he uh, quarrelled with Wilson and the conception of the of the uh, uh, the League of Nations because he thought it was depriving the United States of its sovereignty. Uh, now, who knows whether the League of Nations would have worked better and succeeded in heading off the disasters of the 20th century if um, if uh, Henry Cabot Lodge had lost that argument, if Woodrow Wilson had been more skillful and perhaps a little more humble in his dealings with the, with the Senate and the, and the Congress, uh, we don't know. But the fact is both of them came at their opposite positions as exceptionalists. And you can keep doing this. You can say, Bill Buckley... Uh, William, William F. Buckley Jr. was an American exceptionist. So was Martin Luther King, an American exceptionist. It is it is a good and healthy thing to believe that your country uh, has high ideals and has, sets high standards and is a good uh, society. It, well, it is not a good thing uh, to believe 
untrue things about it. Uh, it's bound to be bad for an individual or for, or for a nation, I think, to believe things that are not wholly true. Would it be fair to say that American exceptionalism, then, uh, can be used most effectively within the multinational uh, institutions that exist, rather than this kind of, I would say, political antinomialism that we know best and therefore we don't need to be held up by the rules? That would certainly be my, my instinct and my belief. I, I agree with that. I, I, I do think that, uh, first of all, I think that most countries, and certainly most great countries, do have a sense of some kind of historical mission and, 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 and myth. Um, I list some of them in the book. Um, but secondly, I think that it is, it is wise uh, to acknowledge that you know, you know, we are only human; that we are not superior to other people; that we therefore should work with other people, and in particular, we should take very good care not to decide that we know better than other people how they should be governed. I, you know, I I say in the book, I belong to the generation of of Europeans who were convinced that imperialism was a a, a disaster, a, a bloodstained disaster, and when I encounter um, near conservatives uh, saying, "Oh, what's this? You want to call us an empire? That's fine. Yeah, we're an empire." It, it really just astonishes me because it seems to me the United States, its best traditions, uh, were derived from a, a passionate conviction that empire was wrong. Now it's interestingly true that some of the founding fathers, including Jefferson, did sometimes use the word empire. Jefferson actually did not say an empire of liberty, I believe. He said an empire for liberty, which is an interesting distinction. But, but I, I, just, I, I just think that it's, I'm uncomfortable about, about anything that appears to be defending uh, a kind of imperialism, even if it's denied. So finally, what are your hopes for the incoming Obama administration? Well, uh, my hopes are very high. Um, I think... I think Obama has inherited a, a fantastically difficult situation, above all in economic terms, but also in international relations, too. I think there are uh, a number of issues, you know, just Pakistan, uh, Iran, um, many issues in Africa are extremely difficult and dangerous. And I think he's, he's, he's a rather more conservative man temperamentally, I think, than people at first thought. But I think he's got very great political gifts, all the way from being a brilliant orator, which he is, from having a certain sort of calm and a certain probably rather hard-earned self-confidence. And I, I'm optimistic, but I think he's going to have to have a lot of help and a lot of luck. Godfrey Hodgson, the author of The Myth of American Exceptionalism. Thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Godfrey Hodgson is associate fellow at the Rothermere American Institute at the University of Oxford. His previous book, Woodrow Wilson's Right Hand, The Life of Colonel Edward M. House, was published by Yale University Press in 2006. The Myth of American Exceptionalism is now available at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Godfrey Hodgson, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. Sweeping up the confetti, recycling the champagne bottles, and generally feeling a bit of post-holiday letdown? 
The Wisdom of the Ages, as well as some really good books, can be found for a song at the Yale Press book sale. Just go on over to www.yalebooks.com, click on the book sale banner, and ease into a chilly January with a great Yale book. The Yale Press Podcast is a monthly show, and subscribing to the feed couldn't be easier. You can either go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast and click on the subscribe here button, or go to any podcast aggregator and search for Yale Press Podcast. And for good measure, if you have any comments or questions about the show, we can be reached at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Heather Diore is the executive producer, Stephen Cray is the editor, Gordon Buffong did research on the Hodgson segment, and my name is Chris Gondek. I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2009. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.